Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. Just a really quick note before I get started, I will be releasing this episode and then one more episode on August 29th, and then I will be on break until November 14th. So this episode is a first for me. It's the first time that I'm going to revisit an old episode because there have been new developments, including a trial and a conviction. This original episode was one of our first episodes that was released over two years ago. I believe it was episode 10. It was an episode that always stuck with me because it went unsolved for so long. And once the perpetrator was identified, you could trace back through the years the hows and whys that explain why these murders went unsolved for so long. So I'm just going to jump into the episode with a refresher on how it all unfolded. San Mateo County lies just south of San Francisco, and today it's more commonly known as Silicon Valley and home to some of the most well-known tech companies in the world. But back in the 1970s, it was a residential commuter area where families looking for a slower pace of living could settle down with a house and a yard and still commute into nearby San Francisco for work. These communities were considered a quiet escape from the bustling city and a preferential option to Oakland or Berkeley, which are just across the bridge in the East Bay. So when the first four months of 1976 saw the brutal murders of five teenage girls, the people who lived in San Mateo County were terrified. Even more sinister was the striking resemblance the girls shared some even looking like they could be pictures of the same person. With each murder, the police were more desperate for answers, but a break in the case never came. The unsolved murders dominated local newspapers as police put all available resources into the investigations. If they could just get the one break that they needed, they could solve the case and bring justice to the victims and their families. On January 7, 1976, 18-year-old Veronica Ann Cassio was waiting for the bus headed towards San Bruno. Veronica lived with her parents in Pacifica, a small town that lies on the west side of the peninsula. That night, Veronica was planning on going to a friend's birthday party, but she never arrived. When she was late, her friends began to worry and eventually called her parents. Her parents, who believed that she was at the party, called the police to file a missing persons report. 
the search began immediately, and law enforcement tried to trace her whereabouts starting from where she was last seen. The next morning, a 16-year-old boy was walking along the Sharp Park golf course and stumbled across Veronica's body in a creek bed. She had been sexually assaulted and stabbed upwards of 30 times in the face, neck, and torso. Police continued their search in an effort to establish how Veronica got from the bus stop where she was last seen to the golf course where she was found. There was one arrest made in the beginning of the investigation when the police arrested a transient man who had been seen in the area, but he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. Before investigators could make headway in Veronica's case, they had another missing person on their hands. A couple of weeks after Veronica's body was found, 14-year-old Tatiana Marie Blackwell, who went by Tanya, went missing from the Gypsy Hills neighborhood in Pacifica. She left her house to run to 7-Eleven and never returned. According to local newspapers at the time, her family wasn't immediately worried because she had been known to take off for a couple of days at a time in the past. When several days went by and no one heard from her, her family reported her missing. The police investigated, but there just seemed to be no trace of Tanya. Her body would be found months later, on June 6th, by teenagers not far from her home. She had been stabbed multiple times, and her injuries were consistent with Veronica's murder. Even though she had been missing for months, law enforcement believed that she was killed right after her disappearance, and this would make her the second victim. Two weeks after Tanya went missing, on February 2nd, 17-year-old Paula Louise Baxter went missing from San Bruno. She was known as a kind and warm girl who was a junior at Cappuccino High School in San Bruno, where she was a member of the Majorette team. Her body was found two days later on February 4th in the town of Milbrae, just behind a church. She was discovered by one of her friends who had helped organize a search party. She had been stabbed four times and hit in the head with a piece of concrete. Like Veronica, she also was sexually assaulted. Forensic evidence found at this scene was linked to forensic evidence found at Veronica's crime scene. With two bodies forensically linked, found within a month of each other, police in San Mateo County were working overtime to bring in a suspect for questioning. An article ran on March 19, 1976, and a spokesperson for the five-person task force that was made up of both Milbrae and Pacifica police officers said that they had hit a wall in the investigation. Milbrae Sergeant Ron Kane was also quoted saying, We are no further ahead today than we were when the murders were committed. We have talked to a lot of people and a lot of agencies, but still we have gotten nowhere. They also said that they had spent the last few months running down dead-end leads and looking into unsolved murders across the western United States. 
With no new leads, all the police could do was wait for a break in the case or for another victim to be found. Unfortunately, police weren't waiting long. Ten days after that article ran on April 1st, Denise Lamp was found stabbed to death inside of her car in the Saramonte Shopping Center in Daly City. Denise was found by a security guard and her friend who had come to the shopping center looking for her when Denise failed to meet her at her house at 9.30 that night. The two girls, who also worked at the shopping center, had planned to meet up at Denise's house in Broadmoor. When her friend arrived at Denise's home and she wasn't there, she became extremely worried and went to the shopping center because she knew Denise had been at work earlier that day. The security guard and her friend found her blue 1964 Mustang still parked in the parking lot with Denise in the front seat. She had been stabbed over 20 times and was only dead for about 30 minutes when she was found. Police did not immediately announce a connection between Denise's case and Veronica and Paula's cases because the crime scenes were obviously different. Denise was killed in a high-traffic area and was not sexually assaulted. She also was not a high school student, unlike Veronica and Paula. Even though the crime was inconsistent, Denise did bear a striking resemblance to the other girls. In fact, all of the girls looked eerily similar. Once again, police didn't have much time to investigate Denise's murder before another victim was discovered. Carol Booth was a 26-year-old housewife who was reported missing by her husband on March 15th, and her body was discovered on May 4th. This was just a little over a month after Denise's body was found. Carol was described as someone who could have passed as a teenager, even though she was in her mid-twenties. She also looked very much like the other victims. She was last seen on March 15th, walking home from the bus stop in South San Francisco. She was known to take a shortcut that passed by Kaiser Hospital that was off the main road and passed through a more isolated area. Her body was later found in a shallow grave in that same area. The investigation continued with no new leads, but investigators now had five victims. The police collected hair samples from over 200 men to try and match the hair found on Veronica and Paula, but came up empty. Police even considered that because the victims were stabbed repeatedly, this could be a re-emergence of the Zodiac Killer. In 1986, an article was published checking in on the then 10-year-old cold cases. Investigators were quoted saying, Unless someone comes in and throws himself at us, there isn't much that we can do. In another check-in article for the 20-year anniversary of the murders in 1996, investigators discussed the possibility of reviewing the case for DNA evidence. While in 1996, DNA techniques weren't as advanced as they are now, 
DNA testing would have potentially given law enforcement new leads. And even though the idea was thrown out there, the case remained cold. Another 18 years went by before anything changed in March of 2014. That was when the FBI held a press conference in San Mateo County and revealed that they were forming a task force and reopening the investigation into all five murders. At the press conference, it was announced for the first time that the investigations were being reopened because there was a DNA link between the San Mateo killings and a 1976 murder of a woman in Reno, Nevada. Just a few months later, on September 8, 2014, 66-year-old Rodney Halbauer was officially named a person of interest in the murder of the woman from Reno and all five women in San Mateo County. In the 35-plus years between the killings in San Mateo and the DNA match in 2014, Rodney had been in and out of prison all over the western United States. And at the time of the murders in 1976, Rodney was free and out of jail while appealing an unrelated rape charge. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. So, who was Rodney Halbauer? He was born on June 27, 1948, in Wisconsin. And if you take his own account as truth, his first experience with law enforcement was when he was caught breaking windows at a house when he was just nine years old. When he was 13, he was arrested for wrecking a stolen car and detained in a juvenile detention facility. He eventually escaped from there and was caught committing more crimes and then detained again. This cycle of crime, arrest, and escape would be a prominent pattern in his life. 
The first article that I found about Rodney Halbauer was a blurb in the Detroit Free Press from February 7, 1969. The headline reads, Lost One Pair of Handcuffs, and the blurb goes on to say, Muskegon Heights police are searching for Rodney Halbauer, 20, who was placed in a police cruiser while police searched his home for the loot he had taken from a local grocery store. When they returned, Halbauer was gone, handcuffs and all. Less than two years later, he was in trouble with the police again. However, this time, his crimes had escalated. In August of 1970, he had a warrant out for his arrest for forgery charges. When the police tried to pull him over for an unrelated traffic violation, he led them on a high-speed chase where he ran 20 stop signs and 8 red lights to elude capture. Even more disturbing, his girlfriend and small child were in the car with him. The chase ended when his car hit a house and he fled on foot, leaving the two behind. Then, on Thanksgiving Day, 1975, in Reno, Nevada, a woman was walking home from her shift as a blackjack dealer at a local casino. It was on her walk that she was confronted by a man with a knife who demanded that she go with him. She was taken behind an apartment building and assaulted. Rodney was arrested a half an hour after the woman reported her crime to the police. This was actually the second time he was arrested that night. He had been detained and released as a suspect in several small arson fires that had taken place in the area. Once the police received the report of the rape and the description of the suspect, they set out to find Rodney again, and he was arrested in downtown Reno. In April of 1976, Rodney was found guilty of rape. Eight men and four women deliberated for less than five hours, and he was sentenced to life in prison. Rodney was only in prison for a year before he escaped in June of 1977. He fled the prison on foot and resurfaced back in Michigan. While he was there, he went to the house where his ex-girlfriend and now seven-year-old child were living. He cut the phone wires, broke into the home, and kidnapped his child in the middle of the night on July 31st. They were missing for nearly 24 hours before the police caught up with them. Rodney gave up without a struggle, but he was apprehended alone. A frantic search for his child ensued, and eventually the child was found nearby, wrapped in a blanket, hiding in some bushes. Rodney was arrested, charged, and awaiting extradition back to Nevada to resume his prison sentence, and his child was able to be reunited with their mother. Rodney wasn't apprehended until August 1st and spent just a little over a month on the run. Eventually, he was returned to prison in Nevada where he tried to escape again but failed. However, in December of 1986, Rodney and another inmate who was also serving a life sentence for sexual assault climbed over a wall, walked across the roof of the prison, and cut a hole in the chain-link fence before walking to freedom. 
This time, Rodney fled to Oregon. He was discovered when he was arrested for stabbing a woman while he was trying to steal her purse. Fortunately, this woman survived her injuries, and Rodney was arrested and charged with attempted murder, assault, and robbery. In 1987, Rodney was evaluated by a psychiatrist in prison. He was described as an intelligent man who had a severe personality disorder and a propensity towards criminal behavior. Rodney got a high school diploma while in prison, but didn't take any classes beyond that while incarcerated. Even though he had no job skills or higher education, the psychiatrist reported that Rodney indicated that he felt very accomplished and that he should be teaching the classes. The report also said that Rodney's life was, quote, replete with poor impulse control, narcissism, and grandiosity. During the trial, the jury found him guilty. In November of 1987, he was sentenced to 90 years in prison, plus an additional 10 years for escaping from prison in Reno. At this time, Rodney was nearly 40 years old and had spent over half of his life in and out of prison. During the sentencing, the judge told him, quote, It is pretty clear to me that you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. To which Rodney replied, It doesn't matter how much prison time you give me. He then went on to claim that he did not commit this crime or the other crimes that he had already been convicted of. When asked by the court if he was remorseful, he said that he was because he hurt his mom. In 1994, Rodney tried to escape prison again. He had been transferred to a New Mexico prison to serve his concurrent sentences for his crimes in Oregon and Nevada. His escape plot was caught by chance when a prison guard was visiting cells delivering the mail. That particular day, there was a delay in the normal mail delivery, and the guard was passing it out several hours later than normal. When he got to Rodney's cell, it was about 8.15 at night, and all the inmates were required to be in their cell at that time. So when the prison guard arrived to Rodney's empty cell, he sounded the alarm. Rodney was found by a guard who was manning the watchtower while trying to cut a hole in one of the prison fences. Rodney may have believed that getting through this fence would have led him to freedom once again, but he would need to get through several more sections of the prison before he found his way out. Rodney was apprehended and returned to his cell to continue his sentence. At some point, Rodney was transferred back to prison in Nevada and eventually back to Oregon. Officials in Oregon collected his DNA and submitted it to the National DNA Database in 2014. His DNA matched to the DNA collected at the scene of the murder of a woman named Michelle Mitchell in Reno. Michelle was murdered in late 1976. Under most circumstances, this would be something for investigators to celebrate. The advancement of DNA technology has allowed cold cases to be closed years after the last lead hit a dead end. 
But according to the state of Nevada, in 2014, Michelle Mitchell's murder had been solved back in 1980, and a woman named Kathy Woods had been serving a life sentence for her murder for the last 30 years. 19-year-old Michelle Mitchell was a nursing student at the University of Nevada in Reno. On the night she died, she called her mom to tell her that she was having car trouble, and by the time her mom got to her car to help her, Michelle was nowhere to be found. Witnesses said that they saw her with a man shortly before she disappeared. Her body was discovered a block away in a garage, and her hands were bound, and she had been stabbed. She was discovered by the people who owned the home when they opened their garage door. Large footprints that were assumed to belong to a male were found near her body. Kathy Woods confessed to the murder of Michelle Mitchell while in a state psychiatric hospital in 1979. She was convicted based on her confession, even though much of the eyewitness testimony and evidence at the scene didn't point to Kathy as the perpetrator. In fact, the only solid connection that was able to be drawn was that both Kathy and Michelle were living in Reno at the same time. Now, DNA evidence proved that the wrong person was in prison for a crime that Rodney committed. Kathy Woods was exonerated in September of 2014 and released from prison after spending more than half of her life incarcerated. With the DNA database match, investigators in San Mateo County were able to bring charges against Rodney. In January 2015, he was charged with the murders of Veronica Cassio and Paula Baxter. These two murders were connected by evidence back at the time of the original investigation, and they had the most concrete link to Rodney. It was suspected that he was also responsible for the other murders, but the investigation had only just begun. When he was charged with Paula and Veronica's murders, he was in his late 60s, so investigators had decades of background they needed to retrace and piece together. Rodney was transferred from prison to the county jail in Redwood City to await trial. He was formally arraigned in July of 2016, and the initial hearing was marked by several outbursts from Rodney. The judge eventually kicked him out when he repeatedly addressed the court while the judge and the attorneys were speaking. He also refused to recognize his attorney when he was addressed directly during the proceedings. Rodney also tried to fire his attorney, but his request was denied because the court determined that he was not able to represent himself. Eventually, the trial proceedings continued with an attorney by his side, and he was later ruled competent to stand trial, which began in September of 2018. The trial began the same way his arraignment went in 2016. The San Francisco Chronicle was there to cover the trial on the first day, and Rodney yelled, I am not guilty of these charges, out loud to the courtroom. He was shut down by the judge who ordered him to stop talking out of turn, but that didn't keep him quiet 
and Rodney continued to interrupt the proceedings with comments and at some points even laughter. During the prosecution's opening statement, the assistant district attorney said, quote, These girls couldn't have known it, but they would not live to see their next birthday. He literally came out of the darkness and viciously raped and murdered them. Rodney then interrupted him by throwing his head back and laughing and called the assistant district attorney a liar. When the ADA told the courtroom that after 42 years, Rodney was finally getting his day in court and his day of reckoning was about to begin, Rodney again interrupted the proceedings and said, Reckoning, I will charge you with crimes. The defense tried to move past all of Rodney's outbursts and attempted to create reasonable doubt by calling into question the handling of the evidence by investigators. But they were unsuccessful in their attempt to discredit the investigation, and Rodney was found guilty on September 18, 2018. He was sentenced to two life sentences, and after over 40 years, justice was served for Veronica and Paula. Rodney was convicted in two of the five murders that took place in 1976. These murders had the most concrete evidence against him, but he is still a suspect in the murders of Tanya Blackwell and Carol Lee Booth. They were represented by their surviving family members at Paula and Veronica's trial. The fifth victim, Denise, was later determined to not have been murdered by Rodney. Despite being originally connected to the other murders, it was determined that Rodney was in prison when Denise was murdered. On November 8, 2017, a different man was arrested and charged with the murder of Denise Lamp. His name was Leon Melvin Seymour, and he had been in a prison hospital in California for the last 33 years on unrelated sexual assault charges. Prosecutors allege that a bloodstain found on the jacket that Denise was wearing the night that she was murdered tested positive for Leon. In 1982, Leon was given a 34-year prison sentence for sexual assault charges. He had previous rape convictions around other parts of California, and he was eligible for parole multiple times in the early 2000s, but each time he was denied. He was deemed a high risk of reoffending, and this is why his parole has always been denied. In 2006, under California Senate Bill 1128, unlimited or undetermined sentence enhancements were allowed for certain sexually violent offenses. And under this bill, Leon was committed indefinitely to the prison hospital in Atascadero, California. He is currently awaiting trial for Denise's murder. As for Rodney, he still has outstanding prison sentences in Oregon and will be incarcerated there for several more years. If he lives long enough to finish his Oregon prison sentence, he will return to California to serve his time there. He also faces the possibility of being extradited back to Nevada 
to officially face charges in the murder of Michelle Mitchell. But no matter what happens, Rodney Halbauer will never see the outside of a prison cell ever again. And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you for listening. For more information on this episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to further reading on this episode and more information on misconduct. If you want to get this episode ad-free, then check out my Patreon. And thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters. You help make the show possible. If you have a second, head on over to my social media pages and let me know what you think about this week's episode and share your thoughts and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.